0: There are lots of reasons to love Easter, aren't there? Uh, One of my favorite things about Easter is just the solidarity that comes from it. The thought that right now, all across the city, and on this day, all across the world, there are Christians that I'll never meet, but that are with me. Celebrating the promise that Jesus is alive, and that he can make alive anyone who turns to him. Even me. I love that solidarity. I love the feeling of celebration that we have when we come in. There's a different air in the room. I love singing some of these favorite songs. Some of the ones that, unfortunately, we never seem to sing except on Easter. I love coming back to them. And for me, because I grew up in in a Christian family that celebrated Easter regularly, Easter has a lot of warm memories. And maybe it does for you, too. I don't know. But there is definitely a danger to Easter if if we treat Easter like we normally treat a holiday. Because what do we normally do with our holidays? We treat our holidays as an escape from the normal, don't we? As a day that's not like the other days, that allows us to sort of take a break from what the other days are like and to celebrate something that, because it's only celebrated on a holiday, feels less than normal. We can use holidays like we use some movies. Like we might use Sleepless in Seattle if we're lovesick and lonely. There's some sort of, I don't know, consolation that may come from seeing Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan get together in the end. At least in in that moment, if you're lovesick and lonely, you're imagining yourself experiencing what they're experiencing. But what do we know? Every night you go to sleep, you wake back up the next morning and you're still lonely. We don't want to use a holiday like Easter, like we use vacations from a job that you don't like. How do we use those vacations? We look forward to them. They keep us going in the work that we don't like. Then we enjoy those vacations as a break, as an escape from the normal. But what happens? Every vacation always ends. And Monday morning comes back around after the vacation, And you're back in the job that you don't like. That vacation did nothing to change the reality of your life. And if we use Easter as a day to escape from what's hard about our lives, as an excuse to check out and not think about what's hard about our lives, at least for one day, then we'll be using Easter to avoid Jesus and his implications for our lives, not to savor Jesus and his implications for our lives. See, here's the thing. Easter, as we celebrate it with Christians all over the world, is meant as a chance for us to reflect on, to celebrate, and to savor what's always true every day, but is often forgotten by us. Easter is is supposed to be a chance for us to channel the truth that we celebrate on Easter into the hard things of our lives into the jobs that we don't want to go to, into the marriages that are hard to live with, into the reality of bodies that are decaying and destined for death, into our desires to achieve something great that are often so often frustrated. What is Easter about? Easter Easter is about a promise, a radical claim, maybe familiar to you, but for that reason no less radical. The claim that a a real human person, an actual human body, experienced a brutal and complete death. And that that same human body came back to life three days later. That that same human body is alive right now. That that really happened. And that it happened not just to that one body, but happened as a foretaste of what will happen for every human person who ever puts their faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrection and the life. That's a radical claim. The radical claim is that what Jesus experienced is what we can experience so that what we live now, the lives we live now, are not defined by death Anymore, And the only way for us to realize the full power of this radical claim, for us to taste its truth and to sort of knead it into the details of our lives, the only way that happens is if we look long and hard and honestly at everything that's wrong with the world. We'll never connect with the beauty of Jesus unless we have our eyes open to what's really wrong, unless we use days like this one not as an escape from what we don't like about our lives, but as a chance to see what's hard in our lives in a new way. That's what I want to do this morning. Thankfully, that's the terrain of wisdom. So what I also want to do this morning is throw out a little teaser, uh, especially for those of you who are maybe not, not regularly uh, visiting at Trinity, ha- haven't been with us before, maybe you don't know, we, we're this year walking through a sections, through several sections of the Bible that are known as wisdom books in the Bible. They help us understand what it is to live well in the world. Wisdom in the Bible is about an instinct or a skill for living in the world, but not, but not living in the world as we wish it to be. Wisdom is always about living in the world as it is. Wisdom accepts the truth. It doesn't hide from it. Never does it hide from it. And what's true about the world, what wisdom recognizes, the truth about the world is, is, is It's depressing as often as it isn't. For us to lock in on a promise of Easter, on an experience of Easter, that won't wear off with our naps this afternoon, that won't be gone when your eyes open tomorrow morning, for us to connect with the promise of Easter in that way, we've got to look head on into the darkness before we'll ever see the light of Christ. And I don't know of anywhere in all of the Bible to do that more easily, more usefully than in the book of Ecclesiastes. This morning I want to give you a little bit of a teaser because we're going to be in Ecclesiastes later this summer, unpacking it in a lot more detail. I want to point you to it today, because Ecclesiastes is probably the most depressing book in the Bible. I think it's probably... I should even take the probably out. Ecclesiastes is the most depressing book in the Bible. It's also, perhaps, I'd say probably, the most modern-sounding book in the Bible. It sounds like our world. It feels... Like we feel. As much as anywhere else in the scriptures. And, and though Jesus himself is not mentioned anywhere in Ecclesiastes. Though it isn't a prophecy of Christ in the same way that some other prophets are. It is all about him. And you can't fully understand the beauty of the promise of resurrection. What we've, what we've read and sung about and prayed through already this morning. You can't understand that. Until you understand that Jesus came because Ecclesiastes is true. Now I want to walk you through at a really high level some of the basics of this book. A book that's all about meaninglessness. A guy who had it all. He had everything he could have ever wanted. Everything we want. He had it all and it didn't do it for him. He reaches the end of his life. He looks back and he says, meaningless. Now I want to read for you the, the, sort of his opening uh, summary of his perspective, and then a passage in Ecclesiastes that, that hits on a lot of the themes that the book develops in much more depth later on. That's where we're going to park as a way to get a big picture of what this book is about. And I think you'll see Jesus' promises to offer life come out in a brand new way if you use Ecclesiastes as your dark canvas. I want to read for us now. I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God's word as I read from Ecclesiastes. I'm going to read read from the first chapter, verses 12 to 14. And then I'm going to jump to chapter 2 and read the first several verses of that chapter as well, just to give you a sense of what the whole book is about. This is the word of the Lord. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that's done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. It's Depressing, right? What does he mean? Look ahead to chapter 2. Read the first several verses here. This is... A lot of the themes that are going to be developed later in the book here in sort of condensed, concentrated form. Look at verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, men and women, many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you took the hour or so that it would it would require to read through this little book there's one word you'd see popping up over and over again in the translation i just read the word is vanity some of you may have meaningless or unreal that's what the word means these things aren't real there's no substance that word comes up more than 30 times in the book that's what the book is about the whole thing is about the meaninglessness of life under the sun. Viewed in light of this world only. And the book is written to show us that everything is meaningless. To show us that that's true. To illustrate it. And then to show us why everything is meaningless. That everything is meaningless. Why everything is meaningless. I want to point you towards those two answers that are found in this book. That everything is meaningless. He, he, he first shows us that. And he does that with his own experience. His examples in chapter 2 are incredibly modern, aren't they? He wanted what we want out of life. What do we seek in life to make it worthwhile? What do we believe will make us happy, help us get through our days and enjoy ourselves? Well, we want pleasure, don't we? We want happiness. He sought it in comedy. Look at verse 2 in chapter 2. And laughter. We do that. I love a good sitcom. It's an escape from reality or at least a way to, to lighten up what's true. Comedy didn't do it for him. He sought it in wine, verse 3. We seek it that way. Good food, good drink, feasting. Wine as a symbol of, of what you can enjoy when you have everything that you need. It's, it's sort of over and above just the subsistence of bread and water. He didn't deny himself. he had plenty, nothing. We throw ourselves into our work, so did he. I build houses, gardens, vineyards. He was an expert home decorator. He was an architect. He was a horticulturist. Nothing. He got himself leisure. Bought slaves. Had slaves. He piled up stuff. Just like we do. Herds. We don't do so much with herds these days. But think, you know. A couple of luxury cars. He had more than anybody else. He was the envy of Jerusalem. He had... Silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. He piled up enough money that he felt secure. He sought pleasure in entertainment. He had singers, men and women. How much of our spare time do we spend seeking to be entertained? To listen to good music, go to a good show, see a great movie. We use it to sort of dull the ache, don't we? He did too. Didn't work. No strings attached sexual pleasure. He had many concubines. It's not a modern thing. They had no strings attached sex then too. Didn't do it for him. Won't do it for you. And verse nine says that he became great, and he surpassed everyone who'd come before him. He threw his life into what all of us throw our lives into one way or the other. To making a name for ourselves that makes us different. We want to be different, don't we? To be exceptional. To be above the norm. One way or another. We don't seek it in the same way. We all want it. We're all afraid if we think we don't have it. He had it. Nothing. There was pleasure for a time, he said. Verse 10 I kept my eyes from nothing that they desired. Nothing my eyes desired did I deny myself. And I found pleasure in my toil for a while. But verse 11 sums it up. When he looks back, when he sees all that he amassed, all that he experienced, all that he accomplished. Think of those things that we live for, right? Getting more, doing more, experiencing, enjoying more. He had it all and none of it meant anything to him. In the end, what was it but meaninglessness, vanity, striving after wind? It's kind of a summary, as I've said, of, of the whole book. There's lots more examples that are unpacked later in the book. We're going to get to those when we, when we get to Ecclesiastes this summer. I wonder how it's striking you so far. Maybe it gets your experience. You know, maybe you've tasted enough of accomplishing your own goals or experiencing the experiences you wanted for yourself or or getting for yourself the things that you've sought. Maybe you've experienced enough of that and the dissatisfaction that comes later to know that he's right. You're tracking with him. It sounds good to you. Depressing, but at least it's true. Maybe it doesn't seem quite right yet. Maybe some of these things don't seem meaningless to you. I think it can especially seem not quite right when you're young. Because a lot of the things this guy is saying he had and didn't like, most of us are still seeking. Maybe you feel like your life is on the rise, that the future is full of possibility and hope. And the author himself, igno- that was his experience at one point. So what changed for him? What did he realize that turned the things that had driven his life into the thinnest vapor that disappeared and we're no more. What changed? What might change for you? When we're young, we tend to put a lot on when we arrive, right? When we finish graduate school. When we get that job. When we finally find who we're going to marry or have children. When our children are finally sleeping through the night the ideal of when we arrive is held out in front of us like a carrot on a stick it helps us to put up with what isn't ideal now in other words put differently when we're young we tend to think about tomorrow as our friend tomorrow is when i get there tomorrow is full of possibility and hope But this is where we have got to connect with the other major theme in this book. Not just that life is meaningless, but why life is meaningless. The thing that lies behind the meaninglessness of life for this guy is the inescapable, inevitable, ugly reality. What lies behind the meaninglessness of life is that this guy learned at some point his life switched over and he realized tomorrow is not my friend. Tomorrow is not when I arrive. Tomorrow is my enemy. Tomorrow is when I die. The best place to see this theme come out is in chapter 3. There's this passage in chapter 3. If, you, if you're following along, when you flip over to chapter 3, look at verse 18. It's not easy to swallow. This is one of the places where he, he comments on what lies behind the meaninglessness he's trying to help you get a taste of. Okay? Verse 18 of chapter 3. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts. for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. And who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward? And the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Who knows? If we end up in the same place as that armadillo that we just ran over last week, what makes us any different? Or our lives any more important than his life? That's the point. You can't view the meaning of life only in light of this day and what pleasure it might bring you. You have to view it in light of where you end up. That's what he's saying. And if you end up dead, then how is your life any better than the cockroach that you squished on your kitchen floor? Maybe this will help you understand it, but help us connect with it a little bit better. Imagine two jets taking a flight across the mountains. One of them, a luxury private jet. Plush leather seats. Those pods that the first class people get on the international flights. You know those ones that, that sort of lay down? They kind of look like some kind of spacecraft, the newer ones. The complimentary noise isolating or canceling headphones. The warm, damp towels made of pure Egyptian cotton. The, 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 the bigger screen and premium. Entertainment package, the gourmet food cooked by an onboard chef. Now imagine that jet flying over the mountains, and then imagine one of those big army or air force transport planes. You know the ones where they don't even really have seats; like the middle of it is is just kind of an open nothingness, and then there's there's sort of webbing or netting on the sides that you sit on and sort of strap yourself in with a, a shoulder harness. There's no air control in there, and it's really loud. There's no food or premium entertainment. It just sort of is what it is, flying along over the mountains. Now, viewed in light of, you know, say, a 10-minute stretch of that trip, there is every difference in the world between these two transportation methods. And you'd have cause for complaining if you were the one stuck on the Army transport while someone else randomly got stuck on the luxury jet. If you were one of the ones on the luxury jet and you had earned it, you'd have cause for believing that your life had great meaning and that compared to the guy on the Army transport jet, you had it made. But let's say both of these jets are destined for a crash into an unseen mountain shrouded by clouds. Let's say both of them are going to crash. Then what would you say about the quality of those transportation experiences? What you would say is that, really, you've got to view the whole thing in light of where it ended, and that the Egyptian cotton can't do anything to keep that person from dying in a fiery crash into the side of a rocky mountain. So what good is it? What's even the point? It's all vanity. It's all unreal. It may as well not have happened. That's what you would say, and that's what this author is saying to us about all the things we try to fill up our lives with. Emptiness. Nothingness. Because you're still going to die. Now. Wisdom says that we are fools. If we think that once we've got what we seek in this life. We'll feel any better. Wisdom says that the stress we normally live with. Is driven by what we think will make our lives meaningful. By whether we'll get what we want. Or accomplish what we want. Or become who we want. Or enjoy what we want. But. This stress that consumes our thoughts and steals our sleep and drives our addictions and darkens our best days is all for nothing because wisdom says life is defined not by what you get out of it but by where it ends. That's Ecclesiastes. Where's Jesus? One writer even claims that Ecclesiastes here's what what he said. Is the most striking messianic prophecy in all of the Old Testament. The most striking messianic prophecy the Old Testament has to offer. That's what one guy said. It's not really a prophecy, there's no prediction about about a Savior who would come. The meaninglessness of life is the point of the book, it doesn't get better. What does he mean? Prophecy of Jesus. I think he's on to something. Because I, I think that Ecclesiastes is a, is a prophecy of Jesus, is a road paver towards Jesus in the same way that the Empire Strikes Back is a prophecy of the return of the Jedi. The, it's a Star Wars reference. Sorry. You don't get the one without the other. The one doesn't make sense without the other. And there's no reference. In empire, to what's going to happen in return. But you don't understand return unless you understand empire. You don't understand Jesus. You can't really love him. You can't really celebrate what this day means, the promise of resurrection, until you realize just how depressing a life defined by death actually is. When you see how depressing your life is, would be if death is the end of it, Then you hear the promise that Jesus is alive and it comes to life. All of a sudden, everything tastes different, or it should, if we really get it. You've seen the message of wisdom. Now it's time to think on the hope of Easter. The good news is that it is exactly this depressing reality that Jesus came to transform He does not bat an eye at it. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He doesn't tell you he's got the the new product that if only you'll invest your money here, your life will be made meaningful. He doesn't try to distract you from what's true or offer you some cheap solution. Jesus says he's come to fix death. Now earlier in the service, Rick read for us from Isaiah 25, one of my favorite resurrection prophecies. That's where God promises to handle the problem of Ecclesiastes. Did you get that language as he was reading it? Maybe you should reread it. It's beautiful. God promises that on this mountain he's going to set a feast. Rich wine and, and food that will satisfy you. That will actually deliver. He says the key to me providing this feast to you is that I'm going to get rid of. I'm going to swallow up. The covering that's cast over all peoples. The veil that stretches out over all nations. The the ceiling that you can't get beyond. The problem of Ecclesiastes, I am going to swallow up death. That's what Isaiah 25 promises. And Gretchen read from John 20. That passage, reporting that the tomb was empty, that Jesus met with his friends, it has a context I want to invite you, because we don't have time to do it here this morning, I want to invite you to spend some time this afternoon reading a little bit in John, the context for the passage that that Gretchen read. And I want you to read it in light of Ecclesiastes as we've just tasted it. I want you to read John chapter 6. That's where you'll hear Jesus describing to people himself as a meal, Come to me as the bread of life. You eat of me and drink of me. You take me and what I am into yourself so that it nourishes you and you won't be hungry anymore. You will have eternal life. That's what he tells them. Think of Isaiah 25's promise of a feast that satisfies. And then hear Jesus in John chapter 6 saying, eat of me and you'll never be hungry. Then read John chapter 11 after you've read John 6. This is where Jesus meets with one of his dearest friends at the deathbed of this dearest friend's brother where he weeps with this friend but says your brother had to die in other words you had to come face to face with death and taste its ugliness so that you can believe in me that's what he says he had to die so you'd believe in me you need to see death before you'll get me and what you get when you get me in light of death is a promise that i am the resurrection and the life That whoever believes in me, though he die, he'll live. Read John 11. Jesus is promising that he is the one Isaiah was writing of. That he is the one who can solve the problem of Ecclesiastes. But Jesus himself went to the grave. He hung on the cross until his last breath went out of him. And he died a death that is every bit as real as every person you've ever known to die. As real as the death that you will die one day. And as long as he lay in that tomb. There lay above him. There hung over his head a question. He said he could give life. He said he could save us. But he couldn't even keep himself alive. How can a dead man give life to anyone else? He claimed that it was finished on the cross. But it looks to me like he's finished. God promised That he would swallow up death. But death has swallowed him up. As long as that tomb had a body in it, all of this was in doubt. Every bit of it. Then read John 20. And the promise that when Jesus' friends came to the tomb, what they found was a stone rolled away. Was a pile of clothes where Jesus' body had been. Was a tomb filled with light and a voice telling them, it's true. He told you he was going to rise again. He's alive. What they found was Jesus himself in a touchable, seeable, huggable body. Saying that I'm going to your father to make this real for you. Death is not the end for those who trust in Jesus. Because Jesus is alive. Because that really happened. Because this isn't wishful thinking. Death is not the end for those who trust in Jesus. I know it may be hard for you to believe, and we don't have time this morning to go into the good historical reasons for believing this Jesus really did come back to life. I want to, to refer you to a, a sermon that I preached on the resurrection of Jesus just a couple months back, where I went into a little bit more of the evidence for this claim that his body really is alive, that people really did see him, that you can trust it. You can find it on the website of our church, a sermon on John chapter 20 that goes into some of this. For now, I just want to encourage you with this and say that here is where we have to take the hope of Easter back into the real world that you're going to be living in tomorrow tomorrow morning you're going to wake up and the world is still going to be full of trouble. Ecclesiastes still sounds wise to us for good reason. That guy gets it. And that's still going to be true tomorrow. The presence of death is still all around you. The presence of death is still in you. And it's not just in the decay of your body that every day heightens. It's also in the joys that you taste of but that don't fill you up. It's also in the things that you want but don't get. Good desires. Holy and healthy things that aren't yours yet. Death shows up everywhere we know sadness and pain and it is all over. But here's the, here's the hope of Easter. That every place, every place in your life that death rears its ugly head. every place that you know fear or dissatisfaction or disappointment every one of those places every one of those times you have an opportunity you have an opportunity to hope on the resurrection and the promise that jesus will make all things new and it's even in what you don't have even in what isn't delivering that you've got a chance to cultivate a hunger and a longing for what Jesus has promised to make true for you once and for all beyond the shadow of death. A few months ago, I went to this uh, uh, an event. Of, uh, a guest speaker had come in for this event. There was a meet and greet social beforehand. There was some food, we were promised food beforehand. Uh, so I didn't eat dinner, and I went to the meet and greet, and um, they had cheese and crackers and some strawberries, that was it. It was a high quality cheese, and the strawberries were very flavorful, but I thought I was getting a meal, and I got an appetizer, and I ate a lot of cheese and crackers that night, but it still didn't do the trick. Now, in that, in that sense, all I could really think about while I was eating was what I wasn't getting, right? I couldn't even enjoy the cheese and the delicious strawberries because I thought I was going to get some meat. But generally speaking, I love a good cheese plate. And I love delicious strawberries. They have a kind of joy in them. Now imagine how different it would have been if I had been served this exact same food before a medium rare filet that I knew was coming. Imagine my perspective, how different it would be. All of a sudden, the cheese and all of its limitations would take on whole new dimensions. I'd be able to savor the complexity of the flavors to fully enjoy it for what it was, not be held back by what it wasn't. Cuz I knew that you know even if I had to do without the cheese altogether, I'm going to be good. That meal is coming. The promise of Easter is that the meal is coming. The feast of rich food well prepared of well-aged wine that you can drink to your fill. That feast is coming because Christ has come and his real human body really died and it really is alive. And that means that you can be alive too if you trust in him. It's not just his life, it's the life he can give to you. What does that do, friends, to the things that otherwise would leave you wanting? Every time you taste of some good pleasure God has given you in your life and are tempted to be distracted by what it isn't, Every time you're tempted towards Ecclesiastes chapter 2, there's your opportunity to say, thank you God for the appetizer. It's delicious. Not filling, but delicious. And boy, does it make me hungry. For the day when everything you have promised is true, not just in the eyes of faith, but in the full orb experience of reality. Friends, that is how to use Easter. Take that promise and channel it into Monday morning. And the only way we get there is by prayer. So would you join me now to do that? Father, we need your help to believe on Jesus. The promises are great. The promises don't leave anything that we want out of the equation. But our experience makes these promises so hard to trust. Death is everywhere in us, even when we can't see it. Will you conquer it for us? That is the promise of Jesus' resurrection as it's told to us in the Bible. We want to believe that promise and live from it. And we pray to you with the faithful who have gone before us, with all those who are worshiping Jesus, with those... In Syria and Iraq, who are facing death for Christ, we pray alongside our brothers and sisters throughout time and across the world. Oh, Jesus, come quickly. Hold us fast until you come, but please come quickly. And keep us faithful till you do, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.